Good morning. Good morning, birds. <laughs> Do you ever look at the state of our planet, or, or maybe just your own life, and you ask, what is this life all about? Did ever, that ever come across your mind at all? What is this life all about? And maybe as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you add to that question and you say, what does God want from me? Like me, personally. Do you ever ask that? From Micah chapter 6, verse 8, comes an answer. It's one of many, but it's, it's one of the places you can go. Where Micah says, he has told you, God has told you, man, what is good and what the Lord really wants from you. He wants you to promote justice. He wants you to be faithful. And he wants you to live obediently before him. Pretty plain, right? Pretty simple, pretty black and white. And that's great. And I thank God that he's given us passages like this to know what we're supposed to do. But the question remains, how? How do, how do you and I get to that kind of spiritually healthy place in this life while the world spins out of control? Consider this. Consider core exercise. I, I've lost you all, right? Like, people are leaving. Have you ever worked? <laughs> I'm sorry. Have you ever worked on your core muscles? And some of you are like, I have core muscles. <laughs> Where are they? Ask your neighbor. They will try to help you find them. The, the Pilates exercise program is all about what they call core training. Um, the basic philosophy of Pilates is that if you strengthen the inner core muscles of your body, the theory goes that if the core of your body is strong, the rest of your body will also be healthy and strong as well. Core exercise. Okay. Now consider core faith. Have you ever exercised your faith muscles? No hands. Okay, good. Got a good crowd. The theory, and it's not a theory, it goes that if the Christian is strong and has developed those muscles, those basic central core disciplines and beliefs, then as with Pilates, the same way, the entire Christian life will be stronger. It'll be healthier as well. I'm talking about the basic faith and practice that every one of us who calls Jesus Savior is supposed to live, be, and do. It's all about how we get to what God really wants from us, like he said in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, as just one of many examples. And Paul told a young uh, pastor, his name was Timothy, how to get to that place, how to get there and how to keep on track with what God's Word actually says about the subject and what God's Word requires of each of us in this room. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to start reading. As I urged you, so Paul's talking to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, you, Timothy, I want you to remain in the city called Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, 
And that charge issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I would suggest core faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these principles, have wandered away into vain discussions. They want to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions like we hear on a daily basis in our world today. Our faith is what we practice. It's what we practice in real life. It's how we process and it's how we respond when friends and family are not faithful. It's how we respond when stuff doesn't go your way. Of course, that never happens, right? It's how you respond to our world that is spinning towards evil closer and closer every day. There's a professor of classics who once stated this, I claim to be an historian. My approach to the classics is historical. And I'll tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. <laughs> so our faith, right, what we, what we practice in real life does have an historical basis. The historical life of Jesus, the historical death of Jesus, and the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that should give us some confidence, right, as we pursue the path that God has set before each of us. But as you get started on that Christian journey, or for some of you here, you're well on the, into that journey, we all still come up with basic questions that come out each and every day. Questions that some of us may have are some of these. Who is God and what is He like? How can I be sure I'm going to heaven? How can I grow in my Christian life? What does God want me to do? What is the nature of the Bible? Where did it come from? How do I interpret the Bible? Who is Jesus and how does His life impact me? Who is the Holy Spirit and what does He do? What does the Bible say or not say about the future of this planet? And these are just some, a few of the questions that we're going to go over and delve into in our summer series called Core Faith that we are beginning today. That's what it's going to address. And I suppose another way to look at this, what we're going to be doing for the summer together, is um, and starting it in depth next week, is we're going to grow together as disciples of Jesus. Are you a disciple? I mean, you are. Every one of us is a disciple of someone, but is it Jesus? The first reference to a disciple in the New Testament is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Matthew says, seeing the crowds, talking about Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... And what follows is perhaps one of the greatest sermons of all time. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon to disciples of Jesus. That's who it's to. A sermon that you and I went over verse by verse during COVID. And the Greek dictionary definition of that word disciple is this. It's one who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil, an apprentice, in short, a disciple is a student, a, a learner of someone. 
But look at Jesus' own definition of a disciple. Luke records it in chapter 9, verse uh, 23 of Luke. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Being a disciple first is for anyone. The invitation is an open one. But notice that there are conditions. Did you see those? And this is, where, this is what trips everybody up. First, a disciple must deny himself and take up his cross. When you think of self-denial, what do you think of? Come on, let's, let's talk amongst ourselves. When you, when you, when you, self-denial, what do you think of? Yeah, that's probably number one in America, right? Food. Um, often when we think of self-denial, it's something like, I will eat only one donut today instead of two. You know, don't push it too hard. You might get a hernia. Uh, Jesus <laughs> is talking about denial to the point of death. Even death on a cross, if need be. Second, discipleship is daily. Did you notice that? It's not this one-time thing. It's not you, you come down at an invitation and you come down an aisle and you offer yourself and, or, or, you, or you say that prayer, whatever that prayer is, and, and you're in and it's done and it's all over. But every day I'm supposed to get up and I'm supposed to decide, determine, have a plan of how to be a disciple. And I'm supposed to be one. And third, a disciple follows Christ. This is key. It's Jesus' example. It's Jesus' teaching. It's Jesus' call on your life, not somebody else's, on your life and no one else's. Remember what I read earlier, what Paul told Timothy? He said, so that you may charge certain pers persons not to teach any different doctrine. And there's all kinds of thinking out there, all kinds of of it. And some of it is really messed up, and some of it calls itself Christian. Doctrine. <laughs> when, when you read that word, when I read that word for you, do you like that word? How many of you think it's a dirty word? <laughs> You're not going to put your hand up, I know, but it's theology. That's theology. Another sometimes dirty word. Our core faith, the strengthening of our spiritual muscles, what we follow in our daily, everyday choices amongst each other, what Jesus says, it's all theology. It's all theology. It's all doctrine. And you say, wait a minute, Pete. Theology is important? I thought it was a bad word. Isn't theology what divides the church? Isn't that why we have so many different denominations today? Isn't it the problem? Isn't theology just so boring? The word theology means, anyone? The study of God. I mean, come on. <laughs> the study of God. What do we do every time we meet together? We study God. Yeah, that's theology. Theology may seem intimidating, but anytime you and I form an opinion about God, anytime we make an assertion about God, anytime we look to God for 
anything at all, I don't care what it is, in essence, we're doing theology. Anytime you make a comment about your world, have you done that? You probably did that today. Anytime you make a comment about your situation, what's going on in your family, in your life, you're doing theology. How many of you would say, God is good? Can I get an amen? How, how about we all say it together? God is good. That's a theological proposition. Anytime someone curses God and they do it every day, they're saying God is bad. That's a theological proposition. How many of you said a prayer to God this week? <laughs> you, sh you should really put your hand up uh, right now. Yeah, you, re you really should. Uh, how many of you said a prayer? How many of you believed He heard you? Okay, good. When you said that prayer, believing, you are implying that God not only exists, but that He acts in, her in our lives in a very personal way, that He cares, that He answers. That's theology. So most of us in this room are theologians. Yeah, pat yourself on the back. Go ahead, you can do that right now. Whether you think you are or not, and here's something very important that we do know about God and what we are to do. We are commanded to love God. This is referred to as the greatest commandment. Jesus was once asked in Matthew 22, verse 36, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the, this is the great and first commandment. If the most important commandment is to love God, then shouldn't we be all in on learning who God is? Shouldn't we be all in on consuming God with our total being, heart, soul, and mind? I think there's only one answer, yes. How can you love someone you do not know? Just put it out there. How can we love someone who we don't work hard to get to know? Some people want to just leave it at experiencing God um, emotionally. Uh, I get it, and it's good. I mean, do you get emotional when you think about God and your salvation? You should. But then in practice, day to day, they neglect learning about God with their mind. Uh, the mind is an area that the church typically neglects. We do. Let's just admit it. A Christian historian st said, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. <laughs> I would agree. Our loving God has assisted us in getting to know Him. Our loving God has revealed Himself in creation all around us. We're going to talk about this as we get into this this summer. And more specifically and importantly, He's revealed Himself in His written Word. You can know God. Theology is learning about the one God that we are to love. And some people like to dismiss theology as merely this head knowledge, a bunch of archaic words rattled off by scholars who have their head in the clouds and no heart in their actions. And that can be true. But how can we love God less if we know Him more? How? 
I am a student of Sandy Mannering. I've been studying her for over 42 years. Hopefully I pass the final exam. It's touch and go, really close. But I couldn't love her more for knowing her. That's how I love her more. And sometimes when you and I encounter difficulties in life, and if you haven't yet today, hang on, like every week, uh, we do not have the answers we want. We do not have what we think we need. That problem you may be currently facing in your life is, is perplexing, and it may, may seem to even be beyond resolve a resolution. And it is times like that, times like this, maybe for you today, when you can fall back on only one thing, and that's the character of God. And you can do that because you know Him, if you do. But what if you don't know Him? What if you don't know what the character of God is really like for sure? What if you lack confidence in His character alone? I mean, life is hard enough. What if I lack confidence in God? Job be our first example today. You find Job's story in the Old Testament. It's a book after his own, his own name, Job. And it's a good example for all of us. So Job's a godly man. And we read that he has an abundance of blessings. He has wealth, health, and family. He's got it all. But one by one, each of these things are taken away. He lost all his children when they were attacked and taken captive and, or, or killed. He lost all his possessions that were destroyed or stolen. And then he's stricken with some kind of a malignant skin disease. I mean, it's all come crashing down. And the question of the entire book, and it's a long book, is why? Why? And Job's friends show up, and they bring many theological answers to the question of why. They spout off what God followers of Job's day were saying and were believing about God and, and how He interacts, how He operates with us, uh, His character. They're attempting to answer life's perplexities. But they all offer theologically wrong answers. And there's plenty of those around us today. And they suggest that Job had sinned, and so this present circumstance was the result. But we who are reading this beautifully written account, it's wonderful poetry, we know that the trials are not due to Job's sin. He's a righteous man, and we're told so from the very beginning of the book. So finally, Job, after listening to these guys, he has an encounter with God himself. And God himself, lo and behold, his own revelation about his own character does not give the final answer to Job's suffering except that God is God. That's what Job's left with. I'm God. That's all you need to know. God is God and His kids just have to trust who He is when all these problems inevitably come. And in the end, God blesses Job beyond that that He had before. The point is that sometimes all we have in this life 
is to accept and to trust in the character of God. That's all we have. Everything else comes and goes. It's like the wind. So we had better know his character to be able to have assurance as we go through the trials and to recognize our experience, what we're going through, up against his character. Joseph, another Old Testament saint, he was hated, he was beaten, and he's sold into slavery by his own brothers. He ends up in prison, later gets elevated to second in the kingdom of Egypt. And his brothers come visiting in the time of a famine, and he reminds his brothers many years later that even evil things, despicably wicked things, can be used by God for his purposes. In theologically reflecting on the situation in Genesis chapter 50, Job states in verse 20, As for you, you Weasley brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Another J, Jonah. Jonah was really ticked off. He was displeased because God had not judged an evil capital city called Nineveh, but rather had saved them from destruction, which they deserved by his mercy. He saved them, and he used Jonah to do it. Jonah correctly attributed, attributed this merciful action of God to the very character of God. Jonah was right on, but he didn't like it. God, this is your character, and I don't like it. <laughs> In verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah says, uh, we read, and he prayed, this is Jonah, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, to go in the opposite direction. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and you're merciful, you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. But he didn't like it. Well, he liked it when it applied to him, I'm sure, but not to others. Sound familiar? Last J, Jesus, the Son of God, trusted in God the Father's character when he was dying on the cross for the sin debt of the entire planet. And Luke records his words in Luke 23, 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Understanding more about God and his character can really help us relate to the situations that we're going through. Knowing God can help you navigate all the confusion. Knowing God can help you navigate the disappointment, the trials, even the temptations of this life. It's all theology. That's all it is. And this is why we're going to spend the summer this way. I hope that during the summer and by the end of the summer, we will get to know God better and to grow in our relationship with Him more. Jesus said in John 17, 3, now this is eternal life. This is the, this is the whole thing here. Listen up now, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. We're going to have a much more deliberate God focus. Because you and I, we're on a lifelong pursuit. 
We're on a lifelong, even eternal pursuit to know God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, and that only comes through the living Word of God. Number two, we're going to better appreciate and understand God's gift of salvation. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies, they long for that pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We're going to have a much more satisfied Bible focus, satisfying Bible focus. Physical food moves a baby like Henry, who we saw here this morning, moves him towards growth and adulthood just in the same way that God's Word, the milk of God's Word, is, 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 it's the only way we're going to grow spiritually. This is it. It's our spiritual food. And lastly, we're going to be better equipped to tell others about this good news that we say we have. We're going to be able to help others grow in their faith. Jesus gave us a commission. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We're not done yet. Baptizing you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Nothing has changed in the last 2,000 years. People still need to know this. We still need to grow in this. So we're going to have a much more intentional people focus as we go through this together. We have a saying here in America, live and learn. Have you ever said that to your kids? Have you said it to yourself recently? It refers to learning from your mistakes. Isn't that how we grow so often? Um, it's called the what? The school of what? Hard knocks. It's true. I, I bear personal witness. I'm not going to tell you the stories, but I got them, okay? And I know you got yours. But here's the thing. The Bible, God's Word, encourages you and I to avoid that which is evil, to not go there in the first place, to learn what is the truth and then to live out that truth without making the mistakes, without committing the sin. So now I invite you to go on this summertime journey together to learn about our core faith and develop some spiritual muscle to get where God wants you to be. For some of us, this is the bad news. For some of us, well, I mean, it's actually good news. For some of us, this will involve shedding a few pounds. Are you ready? Have you got some pounds to lose? Spiritual pounds, that is. And as Christian or possibly a soon-to-become Christian, I want to encourage you to be a better disciple of Jesus. And may the Lord bless us as we study Jesus and grow together. Would you rise with me and let us thank Him for His blessings, for His goodness, for how awesome and great He is. Heavenly Father, we bow before You. There is none more worthy of our attention, of our focus, focus of our time, of our talents, of our treasure, uh, all the gifts You've showered on us, material gifts, spiritual gifts, the ability to share this good news freely and openly with anyone we meet. You are gracious, you are loving, and you are kind. And we want to know more of your character and shine that character to those we encounter. And we pray it. 
knowing you will answer. In Jesus' name, amen.